You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Well, it's funny because I must have asked you a couple of times in the past few months to, to come on the podcast, and finally our schedules clicked. But just in the past few weeks, you've been writing on Twitter these hashtag Goldman tips, <laughs> yes. like a comedy tip of the day. Yeah. And often it's a tip for any kind of art. Like it could be a writing tip. I saw someone tweet, all these are working for yes. me for music. Yes. So they're really about art and the discipline and attention one should pay to being an artist of any kind. And I feel like these tips are picking up steam. So that clearly there is a, a book in you that's coming out <laughs> you know, bit by bit over, over Twitter, which is exciting right. to watch. I've been following these tips and they were fantastic. Each one has been a game-changing tip. Oh, wow. So we're going to talk about them. But I wanted to ask you too about your depression. You're grappling with this demon yes. and it wasn't like a situational thing. It was oh, yeah. a medical thing. Yeah, it was chemical, yes. And you had been hospitalized? Yes. Yes. And depression, it's like a satanic possession. I wasn't myself for, for so long. And now to live as myself and be myself is, is so, it's, it's exhilarating. And I'm so grateful. And everything is so much 
easier to do, walking up these stairs, getting on the, the subway, going to the grocery store, these things that used to be monumental tasks that I would put off because they were so overwhelming are now just, just I don't even think twice about that. So when, when over the years people would come to me and say, do you want to write a book? Do you want to write a screenplay? Do you want to pitch a, a show? I would say, I can't do laundry. Is that a bit, that, that almost sounds like No, a it's not. <laughs> it's not. So happy to have back for the third time, <laughs> Gary Goldman, probably my favorite comedian in the oh, world. Wow. Gary, welcome That's once really again nice. to the show. That's really nice. That's important. Thank you. No, I mean, the last, the last podcast we did... I think has become like a comedy podcast classic because we take apart oh, yeah. your joke, yeah. the abbreviated states, a six-minute joke we talk for 90 minutes like, about <laughs> every single word. I, I recommend that when people ask me, how'd you come up with that joke? Because it's it's probably the, the deepest I've ever gotten into it. Is that is that a joke? the joke that people ask you the most? How oh, you yes, like? yes. People come up to me after the show and they start the sentence by saying, I first discovered you from your, and then they try to think of the name for it and I say the abbreviations bit. And then I say that's my Miss American Pie. Your, your magnum it, opus. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, well, there's so many things I want to talk about. In particular, mm -hmm. you know, I want to start with some, some of the things we ended with the last time where you talked about depression and you were yeah. about to take a break then. But, um, you know, I, I do want to. I do want to ask. Uh, actually, I totally. For, I. I now I need to get slapped in the face. To find We're out talking about depression. <laughs> let's just talk, let's, yeah. talk, let's talk about depression. So, when I last saw you, you were about to move back to Boston for a little yeah. while. Yeah. You were kind of medication resistant to yeah. clinical depression. Yeah. You had been for a while. Yeah. I remember when you came on for the first podcast. It was early in the morning, and that was a bad time for oh, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could barely speak you had no yeah. volume in the voice and, and right and, yeah and then the second time i had scheduled it in the afternoon but but still things were you were you were grappling with this this demon yeah and it wasn't like a situational thing it was just like it was like a oh yeah medical thing yeah it was chemi chemical yes and you had been hospitalized yes yes and it's it's interesting because the uh, a depression has a rhythm and it it affects more than just your your mood. It's it slows down your speech, your access to words, and also your your confidence in in speaking. And it's hard to make connections. My my doctor said that a lot of psychiatrists refer to it as as faux dementia because you get a lot of the the memory and and cognitive issues that you get with with dementia in adult patients. So it's it's alarming how many things that I experienced but completely forgotten my it'll really upset my my girlfriend because she'll say oh you don't you don't remember that at all and I said no it was in the depths of the depression and I and I don't remember it and she'll well, she'll have such vivid memories of certain things and it's it's sad well why do you think it it's I mean and they say that also about bipolar that bipolar okay. often um, the initial symptoms almost can seem like early onset Alzheimer's. Yeah. And I wonder what's the what's the connection between like some things are somehow not moving into long term memory. Is that because the depression gets in the way? Like, a, the, is it anxiety yeah, or is I'm, it depression? I'm not sure. It might be a combination. My my psychiatrist would would probably have more specific ideas. He's a, he's even for a psychiatrist, he's an expert on on these things. He's he's 
got a great reputation. His name is Dr. Richard Friedman. He writes a lot of op-eds for the New York Times, so you can find a lot of his work. But I, I don't know what the connection is. I just know that it's, it's the mood thing is only part of the the depression, and there there are physical things. Like I, I remember, just my girlfriend would be walking, and she's a pretty slow walker, and I couldn't keep up with her couldn't keep up with her I would keep telling her to slow down and to wait for me and it was so it was so sad it looked like she was my my caregiver or something I was just shuffling around in these 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 small errands like three blocks to go get my dog some food would would just exhaust me and I'd, I'd come home and and be exhausted from just three blocks and, and a case of, of dog food so it it's just the the mood is is terrible. That's the worst part of it. But but there are the physical and the the cognitive issues, and also there's there's no escape because you can't enjoy anything. Like I remember somebody saying, "Well, think of some of those things that you love to do and just do them, do them exclusively." And the list was it was empty. There was nothing that I enjoyed doing: watching movies, reading, which was my thing. I used to read 50 books at least every year and and for 2 years I didn't I didn't read a single book I couldn't get through it I couldn't concentrate my mind would get get so so overwhelmed by by the words and I would just read things over and over again and it just was too frustrating to to keep doing and what do you think what do you think I mean there's lots of causes of depression like yeah. there's lack of serotonin there's lack of yes. dopamine there's bipolar yeah. there's all the, there's situational which might get confused with clinical sure what was what do you think was triggering yours and and this is why a lot of people appear to be treatment resistant because they don't know what kind of depression they have right yeah i would i would say that it would it had to have been mostly chemical because the thing that finally gave me the the ladder to to climb out was was change in in medication but it was the seventh or eighth change in medication in within within two and a half years yeah I've heard it takes yeah. on average eight years for someone to find the right treatment for its depression it's incredible and they're saying now that there's some sort of saliva test where they can where they can sort of narrow the the yeah they can do a DNA yeah they can do a DNA test and then match you against other people who have who were treatment resistant but then eventually yeah. found the right medicine right. they match your dna to see which one it most closely matches in their database and then yeah. they give you the same treatment that the one who matches got right right yeah i've i've heard about that and but i never i never did that it was just it was just trial and error but but my my doctor said i i did ask him i said why did you think this would finally work and he said it the the two medicines i take one is cymbalta the other one is remeron he said they they attack so many aspects of of a depression chemically and he he thought that this all-out assault would be the would be the answer in it and it was within within two weeks and it was it gave me enough of a of a jumping off point where I could start to do a few of the things that had that had helped me in the in the past to to sort of augment my my mood and one of them was was spending time with other people and the other one was was some some exercise not not very vigorous at first but eventually I, I was able to to run long distances and and that became something that that was that was crucial and because that releases endorphins yes. that in general is an antidepressant yes. yes absolutely and and so uh 
why didn't he start with that? Like, was, was is there side effects? Like, what was he worried about if he started? Yeah, I'm not with sure. That? I'm not sure. We had tried a, a couple of other things, and then at the insistence of my mother, I got a second opinion, and it was it was just very very foolish. And I tried something else, and it actually made everything worse by by double or triple. So yeah, like that was I think it, yeah. I think people they just throw everything at yeah. you if they don't yeah. know what to do. Like I remember one right. time I was suffering from depression and they just kept literally, let's say upping the ante yeah. until I was taking these antipsychotic drugs that would just make me sleep all day. Yes. They weren't helping at all. Yes. They were just, I would just be groggy or yes. I would sleep 14 hours and then be groggy the rest of the day. Yes, I will say though that I think Remeron is an antipsychotic, but in the dose that I take, it's it's been found to be a... a an effective antidepressant, but I don't take very much, and I think it was more the Cymbalta that was the 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 difference maker. Yeah. And so, so what did you start after two weeks? What did you start feeling like? Did you start like like the clouds cleared or? Well, I don't know if you ever have this reaction to coffee, but some days it makes me feel all powerful and and really confident and i write things and and i'm just energized and for 2 years i would drink coffee and nothing would happen nothing would happen i wouldn't get anything out of it and then i stopped drinking coffee and then one day i i had a cup of coffee and i i felt like a god and i i talked to my my doctor about it and and he said that that was a really good good sign that this was having some some effect on you and and that and also i had exercised extensively during the 2 years i eventually gave up because it, it was just it was too difficult but i had exercised a lot and got nothing out of it and then i started exercising again and i would notice a, a, an improvement in my in my mood w within uh, 15 to 18 minutes of starting the exercise and then it would carry over after the exercise and, and it was really helpful. So it was, it was the, the best way I can put it is that the medicine just gave me a, a, a more normal starting place for my, for my mood rather than being just underwater all the time. And, you know, when you, 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 you moved from New York to Boston yeah. and then I remember you said you were going to um, work even at a summer camp. Yeah, I did that. Yeah, yeah. and so you were. Yeah. It seemed like, uh, uh, like briefly, you were just gonna take a break from comedy. Even I'm yeah, sure you did some clubs. Stop, in I was Boston. going to stop doing comedy because I was starting to get too anxious, and it showed on stage. It was the first time it had ever showed on on stage because I did a, a Colbert in 2016, I think, or maybe 2017. 2017, and, I think, was yeah. the. Um, you talk about depression in the 2017. Yes, but I never mentioned depression. Right. Yeah. You talk about like, yeah. uh, is, please be AM, please be AM. Yes. You know, when you wake up. Oh my up. gosh, yes. Yes. So it was 1 p.m. Yes. I missed a whole M. Yes. Wow. <laughs> but the yeah, the gist of that was that the fork prints were, were evidence of a life in chaos. But now I, I would say that fork prints are symptoms of, of clinical depression. Fork prints and ice cream, rather. What's fork prints? Fork prints. Fork Oh, if you're eating prints. ice cream with yeah. a fork, your yeah, life yeah. is in chaos. Yeah. So I, but I wasn't explicit about suffering from depression. I wasn't comfortable with that on, on late night television. And so 
you wouldn't even know that I was depressed from if unless you knew me from that performance. But I was I was I slept up until it was time to get dressed, and then I went home and slept after that, and was devastated by the performance, and I was just a a wreck. Even though I'm sure people were telling you the performance yes. was great. Yes, you wouldn't believe it, right? But later that year, it got to the point where no, it's so obvious that you're you're in crisis and you're shaking on stage. You're biting your lip and it's bleeding while you're on stage, and and that's. On that set? No. Oh no, later. Later. Okay. Yeah, later that year. And you need to take a, a break from this. And and our mutual friend Amy Koppelman said, even if you just have to have a, a regular job for the rest of your life, because this is this is killing you. And and that was my plan when I went back to Boston was to try to transition to another another career. I had some dates on my calendar that I had to fulfill because the the money was was very good and and it would help cushion my my fall but I was I was in a in a major transition career wise at at 45 or 46 or whatever it was and yeah. and so like you you what about like relationship wise like you you were and are in a relationship she was supportive of yeah. the move but yeah. did you have faith that you guys would remain together. Like well, I imagine that everything must have been in chaos at this point. Yeah, I must say that I was hoping that she would just say, "I can't, I can't take this anymore," and 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 move on because I felt felt so guilty about what I was what I was not giving her as far as partnership and 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 yet she she stuck by. She went to every every doctor's appointment and visited me in the hospital every day and she's really the mvp of my my life over the past few years her her mm. her loyalty and devotion was was unshakable um, yeah can i ask why why during this period did you have to go be hospitalized well i i i'm making a a, a new special and and documentary associated with it and so I don't want to get too far into sort of the mechanics of of the hospitalization because I I, I would rather that be a, a surprise to to people, so I, I won't go into that. But I, I will say that my my girlfriend brought together our friend Amy and my best friend from childhood, and they they had a discussion with me about what I should do, and and it was. They didn't call it an intervention, but that's how it turned out. That I yeah. I went into the hospital after that conversation. Yeah. So so when the treatment started kicking in, you know, and you did you start to feel like okay, I'm gonna try getting back into comedy. Um, like, what was your first thing? When did when when did the compass start to move back towards true north? <laughs> well, the I think the interesting thing was that. I was living in Boston, and there was a club in Harvard Square in Cambridge that I had that sort of carte blanche that they would let me close every show that they that they had. So I would just go on at the at the end for between fifteen minutes and a half hour, whatever they had left before they had to to break down the room. And I was so messed up that it it would have been. It would have been very strange had I not acknowledged what was going on. So I had to talk about it in order to do comedy. So that so that was that was very helpful. It was sort of a necessity type situation, and that was the first time I started being very 
candid about my my depression. So I was doing a little bit of stand up, and but I was shaking the whole time, and I was making. I would watch the videos. I have the videos, and and I would be making faces that were looked like I was in excruciating pain, and and there were times where I, I just it was re- really painful to watch and to to experience. And then when I started to feel better, since okay, so like when you would go and do those fifteen or thirty minutes, and you were starting to reveal about the depression, yeah, were you in advance trying to to write a little about it and throwing some punchlines or were you just going up there and figuring your you know your years of work and stage time and presence would would be able to make whatever you were saying funny well i always write things down and i always ruminate on on ideas so i was preparing all the all the time and and so but i i will say that Oh man, from that, I wrote those five minutes for the Colbert show. I don't know when when that happened. And then for more than a year, I couldn't, I wrote and wrote and couldn't come up with anything that was worth putting on television or really worth repeating on, on stage. I was just going up there with, with blanks night after night and I had good enough stuff from my archives that I could, that I could do the job, but nothing new was coming out. And once I started to feel better the, and be myself, then the floodgates opened up. So I, I think this is important. From I moved back to my mom's June 22nd of 2017. And between then and the following summer, I wrote like 90 new minutes. 90 new minutes which I've never had that type of creative run in my, in my in my life. I've written 45, I've written an hour but not even an hour, but 90 minutes in in a year is 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 impressive. Well, I think I think in the middle of that it was either November or early December I saw you uh, of 2017 I saw you at the Comedy Cellar. Yeah. And the set you did I thought was so incredible. It oh, was like thanks. your you know it was so funny. You were, you're, you're, there was a very good lineup, and you, I think you were closing, and your pacing was just so calm and confident, and you were like saying these esoteric quotes <laughs> from, you know, to kind of go along from famous people to go along with your the jokes and just everything was like it's like almost a different style of humor. I felt. Yeah, you know, that night was really good comics too yeah. up there. Yeah, yeah, that's probably the. The case, I I definitely have have reached. Uh, I feel a, a a new level in my in my in my work. Yeah, and and I th- I think part of it was was sort of the 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 how exhilarating it was to have this this muscle back. It's sort of like if you had broken your leg and and not been able to walk for a year, and then all of a sudden after doing a, a lot of a lot of therapy physical therapy you went out and played basketball and then you would want to stay after and and dunk and dunk and dunk and that's how I f- what I feel I'm doing now with 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 my comedy I can't wait to get on stage every night and for a time I dreaded it and it was it was impossible for me to perform it's it's 
I, I don't know if this is a, a good analogy, but the best analogy I can use these days is that the depression. It's like you're. It's like a, a satanic possession. I wasn't. I wasn't myself for for so long, and now to to live as myself and and be as myself is and be myself is is so. It's it's exhilarating, and I'm so grateful. And everything is so much easier to do. Walking up these stairs getting on the, the subway, going to the grocery store, these things that used to be monumental tasks that I would put off because they were so overwhelming are now just, just I don't even think twice about that. So when, when over the years people would come to me and say, do you want to write a book? Do you want to write a screenplay? Do you want to pitch a, a show? I would say, I can't do laundry. <laughs> Is that, a bit, that, that almost sounds like No, a bit. <laughs> it's not. It's not. I couldn't. I couldn't even do laundry. So the idea of of me writing a book, it's just yes. I'm very flattered that you think I have that in me. But I, I, and I, and I may, but but my tools are 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 ruined. Yeah. Well, well, it's funny because even so. So I must have asked you a couple times in the past few months to, to come on the podcast, and finally our schedules clicked. But just in the past few weeks. You've been writing on Twitter these hashtag Goldman tips, <laughs> yes. like a comedy tip of the day. Yeah, or, and often it's a, it's not just a com, it's a tip for any kind of art. Like it could be a writing tip. I saw someone tweet these are all these are working for yes. me for music. Yes. so they're really about art and the and and the discipline and work uh, and attention one should pay to being an, an an artist of any kind. And I think I feel like. These tips are are picking up steam, so that clearly there is a a book in you that's coming out, you know, <laughs> bit by bit over over Twitter, which is exciting right. to, to watch because I've been following these tips. I realized maybe by day four, oh, this is going to be a regular thing, and they were fantastic. Now we're on day twenty two, yeah. So uh, yeah, and they've all each one has been a game changing tip. Oh wow! So we're gonna we're gonna talk about them in a little bit, but I, I wanted, okay, I wanted to ask you too about you know you look at. Look at when, you know, let's say, let's say your depression is has a line in the sand. And so there's uh -huh. post-depression, or pros coming out of depression, pre coming out of depression. The pre, a lot of your written jokes, a lot, you know, the jokes that we 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 see and know you by, the, the yeah. all your famous hilarious jokes, including abbreviated states or right. role play or any yes. of these things. Um they're they're made up, right? They're yes. they're fiction. Yes. And and there's a difference between fictional jokes which still are just as funny and meaningful and maybe even more difficult to write than jokes that kind of come out of your real life yeah and i've heard arguments on both sides like some people you know live and die by writing fictional jokes and think those are, are great yeah and other people are are a little bit more observational they see what happens in that day they make fun of it on right. stage later yeah. later that day and then they sure. work out the material yes and how do you, you know, you've obviously been going through this transformation because now for the first time ever, you've been talking about what's been going on in your life as opposed to purely making it up. But it does seem like purely making it up, I'm not saying better or worse, but more difficult in some way. Like the more parts of the imagination have to click in. Yeah. Like yeah. right now you were just telling me a story and it almost sounded like a bit. Right, you, but it was a story about what was happening to you. Yes. Whereas to make up the abbreviated states, and again, I'm not saying better right. or worse. I prefer yeah. the real, the truth stuff. Sure. But there's something amazing too about the made-up material, like completely yeah. fictional material. Yeah, I love, I love both. So, 
I, I can't I can't think of of there. Yeah, there are silly things. To me, the made up is the silly. I love the silly. So there's some so, silly. So it's like you're throughout. sitting back yeah. and you're thinking, yes. who the hell named these abbreviated these states? Yes. And you have a thought and it just and you figure yes. it's something in you from based on your experience figures, you know, I can maybe go deeper on that and make a joke. Well, it was and this is the one that I get asked the most about and we've gone in depth, and I don't know if I said that then, but it was the premise was most of these states start with the same first two letters. And there was probably a time in comedy where you could say, Do you ever notice a lot of the states start with the same first two letters? I mean, New England, uh, New York, and New Jersey, or whatever it would be. And the people would laugh and say, I never noticed that. But now it, it's just like, Yeah, you got to go a little bit. A little bit deeper than that, and and there's a, a Bob Newhart influence in it too, where he created a, a fake thing with Abraham Lincoln. So it's just, I really just kind of rewrote that when I when I think about it, not intentionally or consciously or explicitly, but it's that type of style where you're making up something that that didn't happen to to serve a story that you couldn't. Could never really figure out. Well, there there probably is a story of how they abbreviated the states, but they're the people weren't as as charming. So, <laughs> or or a lack of charm. Yeah, But but like you you mentioned in one of your recent tweets something I didn't know is that you you kind of started working on that joke in 1996. Oh yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. Co the contractor part came like 20 years later. <laughs> oh yes yes. The, so, but but that's interesting though. Like and and because because this will get into one of the Goldman tips. The contractor contractor came out like near the the end because in 2006 I have some some notes where he's known as the the abbreviator and then that just that just isn't as fun so, yeah and, and yeah but but in terms of like kind of mining funny material for greater and greater depths like maybe the original I don't know what it was in 1996 but maybe you were just had some punchline around the fact that People in the post office must be really confused, or something. I don't know. And and then no, I probably... remember what it was the first time I did it at like a, a high school. I said I I think I had the idea that these men came together, and they said Alaska, Alabama. I think we might have used that one before, and then they said let's just move on. And in the next one, the guy's response to the fact that they both started with the same first two letters was, oh, shit. And, and then, they, then I just broke down into them swearing at each other because that's all I really knew how to write. I was only a few years in. And then the, the, the crazy thing with that is that documentaries and, and film had to, had to change to be about small things so that you could believe that they could make a documentary about something so absurd. And that was, and that was, I think I mentioned in the interview, that was just an inspiration one, one night at a, at a club. I, I was talking about one documentary and I said, but what about this documentary? And then I just made it up and, and, and that's, that was the sort of the, the, the final push. Well, it was a yeah. good way to, um, I, I think, I think in the set you start off, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here to, recommend a oh, documentary yes, yes. and then I'm going. Yes. And, uh, but it was a good yes. kind of umbrella. But that's ahead of ahead of my time because now everybody wants to tell you about this great documentary they just saw. And yeah. and and because now documentaries was, are better. Yes, they're better <laughs> and they're ubiquitous. Yeah. It, but but it was an interesting structure in that uh, and then <coughs> and then and then we'll get into the 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 Goldman tips and some other <laughs> stuff. But it was an interesting structure in that you have this umbrella about this documentary but you fit in to five minutes, essentially like thirty jokes and punchlines. Oh yeah, and and it was a and after we did 
our podcast, I started thinking for myself, just in my meager, meager, babyish stand-up experience, I started thinking, how can I take, let's say, all the jokes I try to piece together and remember and and find an umbrella-like structure like that? And it, it is interesting to sort of yeah. weave everything through to a complete story. Because um, you had like the omelet station and yeah, you know, that all was these like things that could have been separate jokes. One of the tips was to cannibalize your, your act. So I had years ago written this thing about this really surly omelet chef in, in St. Thomas and I never and I would throw it out there every once in a while and nobody really laughed at it. And then I realized that I needed a discussion to cut away from the Alaska before we the Alabama before we got to Alaska to make the audience forget what we were talking about. And I said, Well, just try the the omelet routine. And then I also had a joke about how the the hotel I was staying at stopped serving breakfast at, at 9 a.m. And I always feel as a comedian, I do not want to write jokes about things that other comedians are writing about. And comedians do a lot of hotel stuff. There's like an entire franchise of comedians doing jokes about the, the keys losing their magnetism in your pocket or whatever. I've seen a dozen different comedians do it. So I'm like, I'm not going to do a hotel joke but I snuck in a hotel joke in this other joke knowing that people won't say, well, it's just a hotel joke. Because there's a certain... Because it's hidden. It's, there's also a certain absurdism to uh, them having this discussion in the middle of a faux documentary about <laughs> the States. <laughs> right. So like, why, like, I'm watching a documentary right. about the States. Why are they getting into this intense discussion yes. about whether the omelet chef is happy or not? But the more absurd it is, the funnier it is. And the more specific it is, the more absurd it is, right? But, but, but... The segue itself is absurd. Like yes. if you had just told the joke, that's funny. Yeah. But the segue away from Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that yeah. that that itself yeah. is funny. Yeah. But I've seen other comedians do that. I didn't make that up. Yeah. But still I, I just appreciated the you know, and and it, it, I appreciated the fact that no matter where a joke is, there's usually I mean, you even give a, a tip, I'm trying to remember the exact words, but you basically say put spaces between the lines and try oh, to yeah, fill yeah, in yeah. those blanks. Yeah. Because there's always further depths you can mine yeah, a piece of material. There's so many times where you say something and to me it's instinctual and it may not have always been, but there will be things that I'll I'll say. So just for example, say say my my uh, I grew up and I was a very strange kid. And then you don't you don't follow up on that, and that's screaming to say, "How are you strange? What strange things did you do?" And then over the years, I've written a, a hundred things about weird things I did as a kid, and then I just keep trying them, trying them out, and some of them are too strange, some of them aren't strange enough, and then you find one that's the right the right fit, and. And it feels it's it's exhilarating. I I can't tell you how how exhilarating it it has been to get that that feedback again off of new jokes because I was missing it for years. Yeah. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. 
And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So... I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter. And I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails, like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. I remember before we started the last podcast where I described to you what we were going to do. Yeah. There was almost like a look of panic in your face. Like, oh, yeah. And you were like, because I think... I, I hit a nerve a little bit, like, oh, no, that's, like, the last great joke I'll Oh, tell. yeah, I'll never write another good joke again. <laughs> and I've I've had that feeling before, and I've gone three months. This time it was over two years, and and it was... It's interesting because I was going mad, but that was even more maddening. Yeah. And so, so you know, one, one of the Goldman tips is, which you, you alluded to earlier, is go back to your old jokes... Yeah. And now that you have more experience, yes. uh, you can you can see how they fit into your current set. You could they, they've evolved too with you, and see see how they evolve. So that that's very interesting advice. And yeah. that's essentially what you did with the, the omelet station and the abbreviated states. Oh, sure, yeah. Have you have you seen it more recently? Well, I'm I'm trying to think of the joke that I I was going through an old notebook just in in preparation for that for that tip, and uh, I I found something where. I said, "Oh my gosh, you could really have fun with that with that now." And and it 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 really made me so happy because I I was I was not just throwing out this thing that had had worked once. It was it was something that I could keep coming coming back to and and I have boxes and boxes of of composition books and notebooks and notepads and and they're yeah, they're they're my greatest asset, I think. Yeah. Do you do you write every day? Yes, yes. I will say you don't have to write all day, but you do have to write every day. Like one of your tips is um, set a timer for like nineteen yes. minutes. Oh my gosh! And, yes, and uh, just keep writing until the nineteen minutes are over. Now, are yes. you writing anything, or are you trying to write premise punchline? Well, lately I'm working on a on a Conan O'Brien appearance for January thirty first. So what I've been doing is writing out the set and then taking each joke and figuring out exactly what I want to say and then trying to find something else to say so that I I found something the other day and I hadn't said it in the, I've been working on these jokes for a few months but I hadn't said it in in the joke and it was about peanut allergies, and then I remembered a a joke that that had failed for a for a, a long time about a a classmate of mine who had a peanut allergy. Because the idea now is is I've heard a number of middle aged comedians saying that there were no peanut allergies when we were growing up, and I and I can refute that. That's just not not true. So. Yeah, I found I found that while trying to to try and make a joke on the on the Conan show a little more a little more dense because I have five minutes 
and I can I can say a lot of funny things during that time. It's not a it's not a one man show where I'm trying to have peaks and and valleys. I just want the best the best advice is to try and like the internal rhymes. You know about those with the, with rappers and poets where there's a, a rhyme on the way to the rhyme, and there can be jokes on the way to the to the punchline. There there should be. So so uh, I think in a lot of times people those start off as riffs. You know what your punchline is, but you see kind of a yeah. reaction in the crowd from some word or some expression you use, and you go a little deeper yeah. there. You riff, right? And then maybe it gets incorporated into the joke. Yes, like in the in the in the. Abbreviations joke. I say rogues fits misfits and ne'er do wells, which is a a really fun expression. That's sort of a cliche. How much do well? Yeah. How, how often, often do, do well? Ne'er. Well? <laughs> and that was just something that I I wrote down, and and it would have been fine had I not called attention to it. But it's a great thing you can unpack, and it's and it was very easy. It took two minutes, and then trying it on on stage, and and the audience loved it. Well, you said something really interesting when you were describing how you're putting together this Conan set, this upcoming Conan set. Um, you were trying to figure out what you what do you want to say. Yeah. Now you know I see comedians here all day, you know, all night long, every day. Yeah. And you can see, and this is no criticism to them because the crowd enjoys it no matter what. But you can see a lot of people are looking for premise, punchline, premise, punchline, and they're not really thinking that. I could tell they're not thinking ever the phrase, what do I really want to say here? So what what does that actually mean? Because I think that is what separates out, you know, a certain level of comedian from other comedians. It's just thinking that sentence while writing a joke. Yeah. I mean, that's high level stuff. I don't I don't think I really thought about that until until recently. I would say that that since the the beginning, thank goodness, I've always had a certain ethos and 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 Aesthetic requirements to the to the jokes that that have that have made me stand out in in certain ways and in, in that I wanted to be original and I wanted to be a comedian that I would want to to see. But for this particular Conan appearance, I want to to refute the the idea that millennials are are soft entitled and and lazy because I. I, it was my tip today. Watch the other comedians on your shows, and I watch a lot of the comedians on my shows, and I just keep seeing middle-aged and older comedians dumping on millennials. And even if it were true, it would be something that I would say. Well, there are plenty of people covering this subject. It's it's my feeling on on topical humor. It's it's like yeah, I could go up there and and say some funny things about the president and and current events but there are i think four tv shows that that cover it every every day and they have a team of writers and it's it's a very difficult difficult field it's never been more competitive and to stand out it really helps if you're talking about something that nobody's talking about and that of course I've by been definition rewarded. that's hard <laughs> I've, but i've been rewarded so greatly by being quirky Abbreviations and and role play are the two things I'm known by far, and I've done hours and hours of material. Great fruit, those two cookies, yeah, okay, Pepsi, yeah, <laughs> right, right. But but grapefruit and Karate Kid, yeah, masterpiece. I guess so. Donald right. Trump, yes, but there, but <laughs> Donald but Trump when he was nothing, just a billionaire. <laughs> nothing is even close to abbreviations and role right. play, right? Yeah. 
Oh, the Karate Kid and the Donald <laughs> Trump one. I've played for a lot of people many years ago, but this has nothing to do with the presidency. The Donald Trump versus Bill Gates. Yeah, like, you know when Bill Gates. Yeah, this was way before the presidency. Yeah. yeah. What's up, Trump? Yes. <laughs> and I was looking at some some notes, and there's there was pages and pages of of dialogue between those two that I had that I had written and tried out or or just felt that it was it sounded too written or too wordy and and it didn't it didn't stick because it it could have gone on much much longer but it was the the main thing that I wish I had kept in there because it 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 didn't always get laughs and it was a little bit vulgar was that that Trump tried to argue with Bill Gates that he was that he was more impressive because of his prowess with with women, and and so I I took that out because it 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 got a little bit too long. But I wish I had kept that in because that would that would be that would seem prescient. It, yeah, <laughs> but it's interesting though. I mean, I don't know what it would have been like with that joke, but I loved the structure of that joke, which is that you know, and I encourage people to Google it. It's Gary Goldman, Bill Gates, Donald Trump. And just the idea that the whole premise being that Bill Gates can be condescending to Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. And it starts off with this whole kind of almost definition of the status hierarchy right. you know, billionaires yeah. find themselves in yeah. and, and your own relationship to that. And and then Bill Gates uh, sort of being almost this savior by being condescending to, to Trump. Yes. It's just hilarious. And then what made it funny is then you're doing – something you don't normally do, but it's almost like you're doing a, an impression because you're, doing, you're Bill Gates right, talking yeah. down to Trump. In, in my voice. But the thing was is that I, I was trying to remember why I why I was so mean to Donald Trump before he was president. There really, But it was that um, I despised him because of the birther situation and also the, the You're Fired, that show. I thought yeah. that was a cruel, mean show. And and my I, I just have a general aversion to reality TV, but that one especially was just a, appealing to all the the basest instincts. And I, I will say this, and this will be an eventual tip that I, that I'll put out there that that joke started as a as a two or three sentence thing about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and it was just it was it was it was not very original in in that it was. Bill Gates having an argument with his wife over why his name was first, and and he was he was putting it in her place, and I just thought it was it was it wasn't very feminist at all, and it was it was objectionable to me, but it got me to talk about Bill Gates on on stage, and and led me to to talk about his his absurd wealth. At the, at the time, but yeah. with 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 Donald Trump, so it was like scaffolding as the as the foil almost instead yeah. of but that Melinda was Gates months, or you months after starting the the joke did Bill did Donald Trump become the foil because original because I mean there was a, I saw another version maybe not another version maybe it was in the same set I don't know because yeah. on YouTube but uh, where one thing Bill Gates won't know is the great feeling it is to find a twenty dollars oh, bill yes. in your pocket yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I don't know if that was in yeah. the same set or was it? No, a different... it was in the same set. Yeah, mm. that I that I I in some ways was just as happy as as Bill Gates because of certain certain things. Yeah. And, and then and then I always want to get we back into the Goldman tips, but then there's something about that joke when when so you find a twenty dollar bill 
in your pocket and, and you and you start by saying this is something Bill Gates will never experience this, this kind of joy and you say my plans changed oh yeah yeah like, yeah yeah and you know and you and you said <clears throat> you know you went to Chipotle but you didn't just say Chipotle you said Chipotle Mexican Grill oh yeah and so I thought it was funny yeah. you added Mexican Grill oh, everyone just says Chipotle yes why'd you add the words just uh, it's, because like, it's there's funnier. an absurdity to it it's specific and and it's 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 the truth and it's and it's funny and it's also it makes me kind of a, a character like who talks this way yeah who says Chipotle Mexican Grill it's obnoxious and then and then there are so many good lines in that joke too this is, I'm just being like a fanboy on this podcast here. <laughs> but there's so many good jokes and there's so many lines where, like you say, when first off, you're going to treat your friend, baller. And yeah. uh, everyone laughs at that. And then later... You but know, I regret saying baller. Hmm? I regret saying baller. No, it was funny. Why? Because it's... Not to mention that it's cultural appropriation. It's also any middle-aged white man can get a laugh by using... Ebonics or or African American slang, and mm. as as much as I enjoyed the the crazy rich Asians, I felt that it, it was I I didn't approve of of the characters who who used African American slang and and mannerisms to get laughs because it was almost it was almost it was it was minstrelly it was really it was objectionable and it really bothered me and and i loved the movie and the performers were were great but i just i cringe now when i when i when i look back and remember that i that i would use expressions like that because it's just it's 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 too easy it's really easy okay well, yeah. well we're, hold on to that thought cuz i want to okay. get to to easy versus not easy cuz <laughs> cuz you're right i think a lot of comedians stunt their growth almost by sticking to easy because they yeah. know that's what gets them back at the clubs over and over and over again. Yes. And I I can see from my perspective both as a, you know, performer and as a club owner that uh uh it, it doesn't it caps careers. Oh yeah. Like it puts a ceiling on careers and they Absolutely. don't realize it and you can't yes. tell them either. No. So no. but 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 uh but there's other things in that joke too like uh you know, for a while you're talking about how you couldn't afford the guacamole, but now with the extra twenty dollars, yes. you're gonna go all out. Yeah. And um and and you make a point, I forget the exact words now, but you make a point of saying, you know, I'll take care of Gary Goldman's finances. <laughs> you know She says she tells me that they're yeah, it's two dollars extra. I said, Why don't you let Gary Goldman worry about Gary Goldman? And that was that was something that I had heard <laughs> somebody saw Larry Bird the night before a playoff game drunk. And and the person said to him, "Hey, don't you have a playoff game in like nine hours?" And he said, "Why don't you let Larry Bird worry about Larry Bird?" And it was one of the greatest stories I ever heard. And I, I thought it would be so obnoxious for me to say that uh, to a Chipotle person over two dollars. But then and then, as a further follow on to that joke, or you know, you said. I'm Gary Goldman. Yes, that's the that's the point. Larry Bird could say Larry Bird, but Gary Goldman, the people don't even remember who I am halfway through the set. Yeah. So it was just yeah. it was just funny. But uh uh and that I guess, you know, you're speaking a little bit to your truth, which is that, you know, you know, a, a comedian struggles all the time with with, you know, money before breakout oh success. Oh my gosh. And, well, I I've had sort of a few situations where I was pretty well off for me. Mm -hmm. 
because of development deals and and tours. And then in, inevitably, or I won't say inevitably, knock on wood, this time I won't, I won't blow it, or next time I won't blow it, but I, would, I, would, I bought a house and it went under and, and because of contractors and things like that, and I became broke. Why and would abbreviators have a problem with you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. And... Yeah, so the the one redemption of that period was was that I had this this thing that people really could relate to about being being broke. That's most of a, of a American. I remember a comedian coming up to me after seeing me perform the 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 twenty dollar joke, and he's enormously successful and internationally famous and so wealthy. And he said, I. I was thinking that I would love to have done that joke, but I'd never get excited over finding $20. And I thought to myself, because I, I don't have much respect for the guy, I thought to myself, I wouldn't trade my act for your money. That's really interesting. Yeah. And you know, it, it's interesting to see... I don't think he meant to be condescending, but I'm very sensitive and, and also it was, um, it was rude, I thought. Because, but he's he's basically complaining about himself, though. Kind of, yeah. So, yeah, it but, was a combination. Yeah, I'm probably misinterpreting it. I mean, I, I'm always wondering. Or maybe he was just trying to be funny. But I'm I'm incredibly sensitive. Like my my mom said to me that I'm like a different person now that I'm feeling well, and and I it's stuck with me for 24 hours. I'm like I'm the same person. I'm just not sick. I I was offended by that. What do you make of that? Well, I think she's trying to say, you know, whatever you're doing, whether it's medical or exercise or yeah. other things you're, you're doing is is positive. She's giving you encouragement. She right. didn't mean anything negative at all. <laughs> she, she didn't say, boy, you were a shithead before yes. and now you're That's great. That's how I took it. <laughs> That's how I took she, it. She, she loves yeah. you and is saying... Please, Gary, stay on on the path that you're on. Yeah. Oh, that's a much healthier way to interpret that. <laughs> that's funny though that you wouldn't automatically interpret it that way, but that no. could be based on your relationship with your yeah, mom probably. and the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> there's got to be a bit in there somewhere. Yeah, of too. course. So, but but it's interesting because I I I know I keep wanting to get to the Goldman tips, but everything you're saying leads to something else. These are all tips, right? <laughs> but but like you know, in terms of having money and not being able to say the $20 joke, you look at how a guy like, let's say Louis C.K. or even Dave Chappelle, how they deal with, you know, the fact that it's it's clear, and Chris Rock too, it's clear they have money now, right? Yeah. Everybody knows exactly how much money they right. have. Yeah. And Louis C.K., like Louis C. he he did it very intelligently in one special, maybe it was hilarious. He said, um, um, I was flying first class on American Airlines, uh, I got, Upgrade. I had a bunch. Ah, uh, uh, fuck it. I always fly American Airlines. Everything you guys do, I do better. <laughs> it, it, it's not going to last forever. It's only going to last a few years, and then it'll yes. be over. Which he wow. turned out to be professionally wow. correct. Huh? Oh and, my word! And but that's how that was an yeah. interesting way for him to terrific to deal way. With it. Yes, brilliant. So because then he just he gets the money issue out of the way, yeah. and then he can keep doing his, yeah. his jokes. Yeah. And Dave Chappelle, it seems like just. He just goes right into it and says, "I'm, I'm, I'm rich now. Like, yeah, deal with yeah. it. I have different right. problems than you, but yeah. you know, we all could still relate." Yeah. So it's just interesting sure, to see yeah, how that different is people interesting. do yeah. it. 
Yeah. Because uh, I think it is a challenge because because the everyman lives paycheck to paycheck. Right. And so if you're trying to, of course, be a comedian to as large an audience as possible, how how do you deal with things that are different than the normal person? But just by definition, being a comedian, you don't have a nine to five job. Right. So yeah. you're different from a hundred million other Americans. Yeah. So, so there's doesn't matter whether it's rich or whether you're a comedian or whether you live in New York City, you're still going to be different from most of the audience you want to reach. Yes, but do you think, I, this just occurred to me that, that because we've seen a lot of comedians over the years, I'll, I'll just put out a theory. We've seen a lot of comedians over the years who've gotten rich and then their stand-up has not been as good as it was before they were rich. But my theory is that they started doing less comedy after they got rich, and that's why their stand-up isn't as good. They didn't feel the need to go up every night and, and do shows in, in front of 12 strangers or, or 50 people or, or whatever, and, and, and so they, they just, by not using their, their, their tools and their, their craft, they, they just fell off. So, yeah. so I think I think that, I mean, you would know better than me, but I think yeah. who, what you're referring to is maybe that they don't go on stage as much, and clearly yeah. having a lot of stage time is, yeah. is important for, even if you write down the jokes, just seeing what the oh, audience absolutely. responds to, riffing and incorporating yes. those into the jokes, yes. and just just getting better at yeah. presence on the stage. Oh my gosh, yes. But I think there's something else too, which is that um, uh, if you, I, I, I see this very much Let's say even, and again, I'm not anywhere, right? I'm a tiny baby at this. This is maybe my fourth or fifth year doing it. But if I invite all my friends yeah. to the audience I, or, or people who know me from my other lives, like books right? and things like that, my sure. readers who have been following me for 20 years, yeah. I, I can destroy. Yeah. But if I'm going up and through a full room full of strangers, it's much more difficult. You, you, it's a much more of a challenge. Sure. And the problem with, like, let's say... I'll just use as an example. I'm not. I'm not saying anything good or bad. Like I in, in, enjoy this person very much. But like Seinfeld, every he just walks on the stage mm -hmm. and everyone loves him, and they just they also love the experience. They're thinking to themselves, "I'm seeing Jerry Seinfeld yes, right in front of yes, me." Yes, yes, yes. So he and he claims that only buys him 45 seconds. It only I, buys me <laughs> four or five minutes. But think of the audience you've cultivated, Jerry. Yeah, that's the thing. Is that they're all huge fans. Of Seinfeld, right? The show, that's a great group. You would want to, if you were on Facebook, you would try to get people to come to your show that were fans of Seinfeld because they have kind of a a, a smart look at at comedy and they appreciate a certain type of clean humor, but but personal and and relatable. And um, you're not attracting people who are fans of something something else or yeah. metalheads or whatever. And and you know almost every comedian I've spoken to on the podcast has expressed the importance of likability. Uh -huh. Um you know almost more important than humor because if they don't like you then they're not going to laugh even if you're funny. Yeah. And but comedians like a Seinfeld or any of these big comedians, Dave Chappelle is a great example. People like him the second he's on stage. They, they're paying already three hundred dollars for right, tickets at yeah. Radio City Music Hall. Yes, that's so, it's so a cognitive true. Bias that they have yes, to like them. that's so true. So, so yeah. that could make them not know anymore the challenge of doing comedy to a group of strangers because that's that in itself is a big skill. How do I do comedy to a room of sixty people that don't know who I am at all? Yes, and three of them are Swedish, so they're never going to laugh. <laughs> 
Yes. So, you know, there's right. all sorts of things. So uh, I think that could be too. Yeah. I don't know if it's whether they, because Chappelle still probably goes up a lot when he's around places, but yeah, everybody sure. likes him automatically. Yeah, yeah. And maybe they didn't 25 years ago. Right. Because they didn't know who he was. Yeah, so yeah. That could that's, that just could be an addition to, to your theory is that the likability almost damages how they're looking. They get skewed by it if it's many years. Right. I wonder. I, I also wonder whether they're getting a true read of their of their jokes because the audience is so primed and things like right. that. That might be a that might be an issue as as well. So it's harder yeah. for them to look at the video and say, hmm, people didn't laugh at this because they were just laughing because oh yeah. my God, it's Jerry Seinfeld. Right. So yeah. you don't know if they're laughing yeah. at the joke or not. Right. Yeah. Um and you're you're it's gonna be interesting how you deal with that because I feel you're known. You're definitely known among it's getting easier. comedy fans. Yeah. Right. It's and getting easier. I'm performing more and more in front of people who are there just to see me. And and when yeah, because I yeah. see whenever you're on tour, everybody from that town like starts tweeting up like yeah. oh Gary Goldman, you're Yeah, so it's great. very neat. Yeah. And like what's yeah. uh, what's the economics of that? Like let's say you go to St. Louis and you're performing at a club, I don't know, five hundred people, eight hundred how many people show up at a typical I, I would say wherever I go I can get 1,500 people or so to, so, to see me. 1,500 yeah. is a lot. That yeah. means a lot of people know who you are. Because yeah. if those people make plans yeah. right. to yeah. show up to see you yeah. as opposed to anything else they could do in St. Louis, that means right. they know you. They know who yeah. you are. And yeah. there are only a percentage of the people who really know you but couldn't make it that night. Yes. So, so and then what's the economics? Like they buy, uh, let's say they buy a ticket for $100. Oh, no, I don't sell tickets for $100. $50? No, 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 less than when that. When I saw I think, Dave Chappelle, I, I paid like $300. Like, no, I think I've limited to like maybe $30 or $35 and sometimes lower than that. So, and yeah. What is that? You split the door somehow? Or? Um, I don't want to get into that, but but yes, for the most part, there's there's... Yeah, that's usually the the case right. at this point. But there was a time when, when I would go in for fifteen hundred dollars for the entire weekend, and no matter how many tickets I sold, I didn't get any more than fifteen hundred dollars. So I'm very grateful that I'm, that I'm at a at a place, and and I really think I'm not that much better of a comedian. I'm better, but I'm not that much better of a comedian now than I was when I was getting paid a thousand dollars and glad to to get it. And so that I think was part of the subconscious decision to start sharing these tips. Well well I and A, by the way, the first tip got like thirty likes on Twitter. The last one gets like nine hundred. So yeah. just twenty days later they're picking up a huge amount of steam. And again I feel like I'm about to get to them, but I always have oh, yeah. more more questions. Um you know, you mentioned about uh, and this was a tip, like, don't do the obvious punchlines. Yeah. You know, like if you can, if someone can figure out the punchline, you need to go oh, yeah. deeper. Yeah. And again, I see that a lot. And, and I think the audience can't always see that, but I think the average comedian who goes up at a club is doing a lot of the same, you know, material that everyone else is doing because it's, it's the quick and easy way to get a laugh. It's, yeah. it's harder to go deeper. But it's hard to also find these areas where, uh, uh, you know, that no one's covered before. Like, again, you take Louis C.K., almost any topic you could tell me, I could come up with a Louis C.K. joke sure. that, that yeah. he's done. He's done yeah. every topic. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so, so what do you, and, and now particularly as you're, I guess one direction to go is, again, mining life's experiences. Yeah. But like, what, how do you, how do you tackle this issue? Like, if you were going to make a, 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 I don't know. You, you've mentioned quite a bit. 
you don't want to repeat the same jokes that white middle-aged comedians are are making yeah like how do you then find you know what they're not talking about <laughs> well figure it out i think one thing that occurred to me when we were talking about what's the what's the audience going to to think is the punchline if they if they can guess your punchline then then you're not going to get a, a laugh but hopefully you'll get to a point where and this is the my aspiration where the comedians won't know where you're where you're going with this where they won't be able to predict your your punchline and and surprise is such a is such a great a crucial element in in comedy so if the audience is about to yell out the the punchline or in some cases I've seen audience members yell out punchlines of comedians before they even get to it it's like you're finished and then so I I I think getting specific and being I read this this quote and I I put it up next to my my bed from from Maya Angelou you can't re run out of creativity the more you use the more you have and my fear for so long was that I better let me think how to how to put this all right so I remember when I first did a joke about about Netflix I was like the only comedian who was doing jokes about Netflix and then I saw another comedian do a joke about Netflix and I was like damn it there goes my my Netflix joke and I and I think that kind of attitude was was um limiting it's saying to your your brain subconsciously yeah you can't come up with with new jokes you can't come up with with new ideas so you better hold on to and hoard every idea you ever came up with because there's it's so hard for you to generate ideas and that that quote from my angelo really i think freed me up at least subconsciously to to say like i used to have a joke about uber and then i noticed over the past year or so every comedian who was going on before me had a joke about uber and and at first i was like ah oh, man i'm not going to be able to do that uber joke anymore and then i thought well that's good let them do their uber jokes and i'll write a joke about anesthesia or something i don't i don't know what i'll write about but it'll be something that won't be the the uber joke but you feel you like a lot of let's say uh you know the comedians who have netflix specials they're taking all the not taking but they're they're using the topics they know everyone's experience so like for instance being broke or abortion or trump right or uh i don't know whatever whatever the hot topics are that day it really is sort of hard to find that that line that every man is going to sort of understand the or or relate to the joke and and yet still you still have your brand of uniqueness in it right i i think it comes back to one of the one of the tips was to read self-reliance by by emerson and and if you if you're if you don't have it in your in your head right now the the main thing to me that i got from that was that the the specific is universal so you can be very very specific and personal and and people will will get it 
Do you think? Do you think now that you're? I mean, you you said earlier uh, about your fees and tours that you feel like you're not necessarily a better comedian than you were then, and except then I'm not this much better. <laughs> but I would I would disagree on the one hand in that then you were doing the abbreviated states, which yeah. obviously is so many people have commented that's like the greatest joke of all time. <laughs> but but now you're mining your personal depths and that's yeah. infinite. Right. So for yeah. everybody. Right. So, yeah. And that's really where but it's but I think that's it's a different kind of challenge. Like as opposed to just being kind of ludicrous and absurd and 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 just ch almost looking at it like a Rubik's Cube puzzle you're trying to put together, it's hard to take biography and insert punchlines into it. You know, if you were giving a TED talk, right, there wouldn't be punchlines every 15 seconds. Right. But it's actually how I started off in 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 jokes, my earliest jokes were were biographical exaggerations of my of my childhood, and and in, in some in some ways I, I've come back to that a little bit because there, there was moving back into my childhood bedroom. There was a lot of time for reflection. I wasn't I wasn't able to watch TV, and I wasn't able to to read in in. I mean, I had a TV and I could watch it. I had no interest. There was nothing on TV that TV was the, was either boring or would remind me of what a what a failure I was that I wasn't on something. And so I just had a lot of time to to think in a bedroom that that really hadn't changed much since since I I lived in it as an as an adolescent. And so, okay, so take that experience, right? Yeah. How would you think about that experience specifically? And if you were to start to put a punchline into it, because that, of course, is, you know, you say the specific is universal. So that's very specific. The average 45-year-old out there yeah. hasn't moved back into his childhood yeah. room. Right. But there's something universal about it in that every 45-year-old man is scared of that. Yes. <laughs> so yes. so there, there is something universal in there. Or knows somebody, has a relative... Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not exactly. that. It's especially nowadays. It's not that uncommon. And I just fear yeah. in general. Yes, and, certainly. And so, so if you were to think about that and to say, because obviously, on the one hand, it was a sad time in your life, and it's, but if you were to say to yourself, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to figure out where the punchline goes, and I only have 15 seconds. I'm just making that up. Yeah, so that's considered the the timeline. <laughs> so, what, what, how would you start to think about that in terms of writing a joke if you were to take that experience? I mean, or for, that emotion. I mean, for me, it's the, sometimes there are there are specific anecdotes. The the time I was taking out my my laundry and folding it, and a pair of my mother's underwear was stuck to one of my sweat wicking running shirts, and I held it up and I said to her, "I said, is this yours or mine?" <laughs> and so I never did that on on stage, but it made her laugh hysterically. So that's that was that was a, a long setup to that joke, right? I had to be that age to to be in a situation where I'm folding my own laundry, and then and then have that have that thought. So yeah, and also it's it's really uncomfortable and awkward and, and embarrassing. Right, and so again. The average person doesn't experience that, right? Because right, by the time yeah. they're old enough to fold laundry, which yeah. by the way is an interesting metric for age, yeah. <laughs> old enough to fold laundry. So there's something there. If you right, know. right, yeah. And then to have that experience, the universality of that is awkwardness. Yes. <laughs> and everyone's done something 
yes. awkward, whether it was with their daughter or with their mother or whatever. Yes. I don't want to sound creepy there with the daughter. <laughs> right, right. But there's this there's this other side of it in that like I, I I was thinking about this last night, just thinking about how how lucky I am if a really nebbishy, broken down guy was talking about moving back in with his mother and and he wasn't dressed in a certain way and he had a certain posture. It might be it might be sad and and so pathetic that you would feel sorry for for laughing, but because I, I have sort of a, a an upbeat smile and posture, people say, "Oh, he's he's over it. He's out of it. There's some distance, and and let's have fun with this guy." If if I look, as opposed to if I were to move back, no, you not no you <laughs> you would good. have yeah you would have no problem with that either. But and I can't think of anybody, but it's. It's just like some people are that there's a, there is a, a a lot of luck and I have a lot of survivor's guilt over my position in comedy which isn't even that fantastic but it's 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 better than a lot of guys who are more talented than me have so yeah I don't know you're always very self-deprecating but um I'll, now I'll hit okay. some of the tips because they they are so good and and <sighs> I've been I've been following. Was it? Do you have any time constraints? Um, I have about fifteen minutes left, if that's okay. Yeah, fifteen yeah. minutes left. All right, record every set. Super yes. important. And we were yes. saying before the podcast, you gave me that advice a year and a half ago, and it's yeah. been amazing for me. Yes. It's like the best piece of advice I've oh my ever gosh. gotten. Yeah, yeah. It's like having a a, a sort of a, a gold mine in your in your home that you can. That, I mean, I have t- 25 years building up to this so I can look into notebooks and listen to old recordings and find things and, and it's like mining for, for, I won't say gold, silver, but but yeah, it's very it's very helpful but, in, in finding jokes and also figuring out where you went wrong or where, where you need to, to sort of do it, um, a, a, try to replicate what you did, yeah. And also, and this relates to another tip, taking out the ums and the ahs. Oh, yes. You can see where you do it so you can practice... Uh, saying the joke yes. in your home, yes, or, and and just doing it because you have yes. to take out the ums and the ahs and and, yes. and decrease the words. Like maybe you could see there was like one riff you did that didn't quite work, or some line that you threw in to build up to the joke that you didn't. You realize later yeah. you didn't need. Yeah. So it's it's valuable for a lot of like because you give all sorts of tips about taking out words because you even just said about the setup to the the fold the folding your mom's laundry. You you basically use too many words to get to the laugh, and you right. mentioned the Goldman tips, you know, just to yeah. essentially get to the yeah. laugh quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, write out a favorite. This is January second. Write out a favorite joke word for word, one sentence at a time. After completing each sentence, analyze each word. <laughs> Why does it work? How do the syllables of the words create rhythm? How do the sentences build to the punchline? What's the grammar of comedy? And I'll ask you about this tip in a second, but you mentioned when we were doing the last podcast about the abbreviated states joke, I would ask you about each word and yeah. and you would say, yeah, it has got a K sound, so it's good to end the sentence with a K right, sound. So yes. you really think about oh, all yes. these things. Yes. And that can only happen from writing it down. Yes. So, so but what is the grammar of comedy? <laughs> a lot of times you skip certain certain words and sometimes you use contractions, sometimes you don't use contractions and sometimes you mumble the tail end of a word when it's clear that they know exactly which word you're 
talking about, and they don't need the entire word. The timing dictates that you say this punchline quickly. It, it's just at this time, it's it's all feel. And I I heard this this interview with a man, or read an interview with a man who cut, spent years cutting salmon, the fish down to pieces for for food and he said he could tell by the sound that the that the salmon made when he slapped it on the counter where he was going to have to make his cuts because he's been doing it so long and and I have a a a sixth sense with the audience where I know exactly where to drop the the punchline and and where to go a little bit faster but it's being on stage 400 times a a year for for 25 years you know, uh, and it, again, it reminds me of the set I saw you do in December 2017 at the Comedy Cellar where it, your pace was so slow. Oh, and yeah. You would, and you would say these quotes. I don't know if you remember it. Like, you had quote, like you had two or three quotes you were saying like from other people. I've never seen that in a, in a set. <laughs> and it was just funny, but it also was interesting. Like, yeah, it, well, the thing is, is that the audience, I'll go as slow as the audience will will let me. Yeah. It was an interesting lineup because I remember specifically there were about three comedians, you were one of them, who were slow-paced and two comedians who were really fast. And yeah. the fast guys were getting a lot of laughs, but I couldn't remember a single thing afterwards. And you were probably the slowest and I could at, at the time I could clearly remember like the whole I mean the whole the whole set. It was, yeah, I mean, part of it is also at that at that point, my my brain wasn't probably firing on all the on all cylinders, so I I may have been been slowed down by by that. But it is a it is a technique and a and a and a style I I employ more and more. And I, I listen to old sets and I cringe because I go so fast. I go so fast. But there's the material isn't that great, so you wanna you wanna get it out there as quickly as possible before people realize it's not funny. Do you, do you think you also did that because you were afraid of silences if the material wasn't Oh, great? yes, of course. So you would skip the yes. silence? Yes. Hmm. yes. How do you deal with silence now? Well, I have such confidence in what I'm going to tell you soon that it doesn't matter what's going on now. I can I can dig a really deep hole and the the punchline to what I'm getting to is so strong that it can overcome that. But th th again, this is this is beyond graduate level. This is PhD comedy, really. Yeah, it's. I wouldn't have been able to say that about myself even four or five years ago. But I think I think the purpose of these tips is to not just say what you know, but also to kind of, um, you know, there's always that so-called 10,000 hour rule of, of mastery, yeah. but to some extent, you know, in every generation, the 10,000 hours is, you know, sort of textually different. Like, you know, tennis players now are like all bulked up. Right. Whereas it, when John McEnroe was yeah. around, they obviously yeah. weren't. Right. So, so I get the idea of these tips is to some extent help current comedians skip some of those 25 years. Now, it might be, 25 years from now, it might be that that this is because you need a whole new set of skills now. You just <laughs> right, like yeah. tennis players That's did true. 20 years later. Yeah. But I imagine some of these tips are here, like record every set so you don't have to wait seven years doing open mics or whatever. 
I don't know. Yeah. I mean, some people have said to me, why are you giving these these things away? And And part of the reason is that hardly anybody is going to use them, and the people who will use them deserve them. Well, because I would have told them if they had just sat down with me after the after the show. And there was this other thing that I was thinking was that I was going to I had this plan where I was going to go on Saturdays when I was in a town and Saturday night, uh, Saturday day before the show, I would give a two hour lecture called Everything I Know About Comedy. And then I thought I need that time to prepare for the show. So I really don't want to want to do that. But I remember there was a there was a comedian who used to charge people to do a to do a class like that and and he would watch them and give them tips and everything like that and I thought it was so so crappy to charge comedians who are who are broke it would be in like it's not New York where there are some comedians who have a lot of money it would be in the local places so unless they're yeah they don't have $200 or $300 to give to some guy to to Judge them? I, I didn't like that. Also, you know, it's an interesting thing about free, right? Nothing is actually free. So you're doing everything is a transaction. So when you're giving these tweets away for free, what what is ostensibly for free, you have to take a step back and think, where what's the actual product? And the actual product is your reader, because what you're doing is you're essentially buying audience <laughs> and. And I don't say this in a negative way. That almost sounds yeah. capitalistic and negative. Right. But you look at how it builds steam. It's one way of building steam by giving something for free. The 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 readers themselves, because you're not selling something that they're paying for, they become the product. And in in a, in a I'm putting it in a crass way, but I don't yeah. mean to sound that way. But right. Uh, uh, and it'll work because you're giving value. You're delivering value, so you're getting value back. Uh, you always get back the value you give, uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I I think that what I'm what I've told people I'm getting out of it is that it it holds me accountable. In that one of the things I I don't know if everybody's like this, but I just despise hypocrisy, and I think it would be so hypocritical if I was giving these tips and then not abiding by them and not writing and which and is so which is like me, in your tip five yeah, it holds a. Me, yeah it holds me accountable yeah. So that's yeah. your tip five A is tweet a series of bombastic writing tips so that if you don't write every <laughs> single day, you'll feel like a hypocrite and a charlatan. Um, let me see if I could uh, uh, find, you know, some ones I want you to ask you about. All of them I want to ask you about, but I know. Um, oh, you know, and you've talked about this already, which is cannibalize your act, go through your joke inventory, maybe from years ago, and relocate some jokes or pieces of jokes. But you also mentioned um, in the Chipotle joke, uh, uh, how you mind something Larry Bird said. So, so you know, let Larry Bird wor- worry about Larry Bird. Yeah. Which is very funny. Yeah. And when would you mine, like, let's say, and I noticed a response to this one, somebody was looking through Mitch Hedberg's notebooks and finding material His wife, for yeah, potential Lynn, yeah. jokes. Yeah. So, so when would you say it's okay to look at what another comedian's doing, not stealing, but saying, okay, there's a there's a germ of something here. I can maybe go in a different direction with it. Oh, never. Never. Yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, the thing is that nobody else knew that quote except this college guy that I went to. This, he's actually passed away, but he was a, a, a friend of ours in, in college, and he told me that story, and I never forgot it. And I, I, I was just like, um, it was the perfect response to that 
to that woman and and had so much I just I just knew how absurd the to get confidence from twenty dollars was that I felt like Larry Bird. <laughs> that, which itself is, yeah. is funny, even though you never mentioned Larry Bird. But yeah. uh, um, let's see, going through these, uh, uh, some of these. Uh, we've talked about a lot of these. Try the same joke with the least amount of words you could possibly imagine saying it with. Which again requires that was Mike Birbiglia, I think, who who right, yeah, right. guest tweeted that guest, yeah. guest tip from a legend. Yeah, and he's really good, actually. Oh, he's amazing. At, at, and what he's specifically good at is telling a story that's filled with punchlines. Funny. So yes. he could take just a yes. very solid story. Yes. That would almost sound the same without the punchlines, but he's got tons of punchlines and yes. good pacing and, and yeah. so on. Yeah, he's remarkable. Oh, and he, I think he performed that night at the at the comedy cellar. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, um, he's terrific. Uh, Get on stage, writing a joke down is less than 50% of the process. So that's interesting. We live in New York City where there's a billion stages around. Yeah. Some people don't. What would you say to people who don't get on stage seven times a night or even seven times a week? Oh, I think you need to get on stage at least five times a week to improve. That was, and it's arbitrary, but that was my, that was my gauge when I was first starting out. Yeah, that I would need to get on stage five times a week, even if it was just in, in front of, I can remember performing to people sitting at a at a bar there was a stage way off in the corner and i it was a luckily they had a wireless microphone and i just went up to the people who were sitting at the bar and i did my jokes to them and they must have thought i was insane but i was convinced that just by saying them out loud even without any laughter i would learn the the jokes and and figure out the the, the pacing and the, the delivery and all this stuff so i think that was helpful yeah it's hard though when someone's beginning to get on stage seven times a week Oh yes. It's it's hard. I mean, it's easy for me now, but yeah, it's really hard to get on stage five times a week when you first start out. And that's that's why it's 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 fortunate that I started off in, in Boston because if I had started off in New York, I don't know that whether I would have been able to get on stage even even once back then. You know you know what I tried a couple of years ago, it was like two or three years ago. Uh I went on a subway. And every stop, oh, you told I went me into about a different that. car. Oh my gosh! And that was James. <laughs> that is brave. It, it was it was definitely brave. I don't know if I could do it again. Oh, um, let me see what else I got here. I don't know. These are all good. Do you mind if I write them down in the article I write about this podcast? No, I don't mind. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, uh, there are people who have done like like documents where they put them all in one document and they've been updating them, but I I can't remember what the link was, but. Oh, I really like this one. You know that joke, and we talked about. Uh, oh this yeah, briefly. this is a good. You one. know that joke you're sick of telling. Write, write it with space in between in each sentence. Add some details, change a word, or unpack an idea. Um, that th I've done this, and it works really well. Oh yes, because you find when you have kind of just the time, you already know something's pretty funny, but not there yeah. and you have the time to think about it you can find like really absurd oh, yes. ludicrous stuff to put totally. in between lines totally and you know that you're coming back to a laugh so you can you can miss maybe yeah. that gives you your confidence about the future when there's a silence on something <laughs> yes so because you've already known yeah so um and then this is interesting it made me think be the comedian you wanted to see think about the things that you wish someone made jokes about when you sat in the audience 
make a list of topics and ideas that you'd be excited to see someone discuss. You know, that that's fascinating. I mean, that's yeah. the advice about writing a book, write the book you yes. wish you had read. Oh yeah. Uh, so, so like, what's an example where you've been able to use that advice? Well, I, I think when I was, when I was younger, I used to wish somebody would talk about, about basketball on stage. And I wish somebody would talk about what was the, the other thing that I was really into when I was, when I was first starting out the incredible Hulk. I remember why doesn't anybody ever make fun of the incredible Hulk? And, and so I started to, to try to work on jokes about, about basketball and the incredible Hulk. And I wound up writing jokes about, about football and, and, figure skating and about karate kid in, instead so that they became things like i was i was i was looking for somebody to make jokes about the things that i was obsessed with and mm -hmm. I, I was i was obsessed with with certain certain films and then watch them over and over again and and i realized that i wasn't the the only person who was making these observations, I was just the, at the time, the only person who was who was, sort of uh, deconstructing them and 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 making the the comments from a person like me. Usually, people like me are winners because I'm very. Oh, you make a joke about that, which is that you would expect. Yes. you know, God has bless this Jewish person with six foot six, you yes. know, athletic abilities, yes. you know, yes. you at least think maybe he wouldn't have the neuroses. Yes. You'd yes. be wrong. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm athletic and, and physically gifted, but I've approached all these sports from a, from a timid and, and sensitive place. So when, when Rocky was drinking the raw eggs, I just, knew he was going to get he was going to get salmonella and and um and cholesterol all right yeah. like, let's say i'll just make this up. let's say you were obsessed with schindler's list okay how would you i'm not asking you to come up with a joke on the fly but how would you start to think about it <laughs> i would think about specific scenes and characters and i mean what what's the best schindler's this joke louis ck about the girl who auditioned oh, yeah. for goodbye jews yeah I yeah and that's a, it's just the greatest Schindler's Schindler's List joke, but I, yeah, that would be that would be an interesting one, and and it would probably be about just the the suffering and the things that I complain about in in real life, which is probably a formula that that people have used. But just off the top of my head, that's what I would I would think about. But I would be very specific about the suffering that I'm that I'm going through. So so yeah. two two quick questions because I know you have to sure. wrap. Sunday night was the. Um, season premiere of crashing oh yeah um you've made an appearance on there before yes. uh yes. i think in season two uh-huh yeah uh but it was really fascinating pete holmes was trying to get past at the cellar so he uh auditions for the real life yeah SD, who's the yes. booker at the comedy cellar yes. who don't know it's the best it's, it's the biggest and and best comedy club in town and i say this as a co-owner of another comedy club right, in town. right but um Esty rejects him, and she says, um, "I didn't, I didn't get you. You have to answer. Who are you? Why are you? Why now?" And I thought that was really fascinating. Those three questions, 
and I think with your stuff with the uh, depression coming out, like you're fully answering those yeah. questions in, yeah. and combining them with punchlines. And you weren't necessarily doing it before, even though it was you had the, the amazing talent to put together the abbreviated states and all those. Right. So it's almost like, I, I don't know. What do you think of, of her advice? You answer, who are you? Why are you? Why now? Oh man, I, I don't I don't know whether I could answer that at any any point. Maybe I could now. It's, it seemed very intimidating, but I think those are I think those are those are important, especially now when it's gotten so competitive that we're just going to say, all right, everybody who gets on that stage at the comedy cellars is funny. They're really funny and they're probably going to to kill. And then you have to to limit it even further and say, okay, just you, yes, you have to kill, but how are you going to do that? And what are we going to get from, from, from that? What are we going to get from that? What are we going to get from you? What are we getting from you that we're not going to get from every other comedian who, who can kill? Obviously, you're going to kill. We've got plenty of, of guys who can kill. And we certainly have a lot of um, young white men who can, who can kill. How are you going to stand out from, from that? And I remember a tip from, from Billy Crystal's manager or something like that, that he said that, that you're not leaving the audience with, with anything. You're killing, but you're not leaving them with, with any kind of emotional or, or visceral thing. And I, and I think he might have been talking about his, his 700 Sundays where that was sort of what he had... He had wanted to to leave an audience with something significant like like that, mm. yeah, not just laughs, but but also that, and and so yeah, I think those are three three great questions. But I think personally, I would get overwhelmed with those questions and then quit. And yet you're and yet you're kind of doing to, them. I hope so. Gosh. So and then the final question I have, which is related to another. But also, I will say this that. Fame would trump any of those three questions. That if for some reason you were really famous, you could get on stage anywhere you wanted and the audience would go crazy. So there are famous people probably who are not answering those three questions. Right, I think that's, yeah. that's what's happening maybe to your, to your point earlier about comedians who have yeah. you know, exceeded a certain level. Yeah. You know, um, Tony Rock once came on the podcast and he had this writing advice, which is, Think of all these major points in your life. Like, let's say there were five major points in your life and then make five bullets underneath them, like what happened during those major points and then come up with a punchline for each. Oh, that's cool. Bullet. Yeah. Um, but it's still, I still find it hard. So I tried it. Yeah. And I still find it hard to like, even if something's a critical point to, to, to turn on the punchline mode, something might be a critical point because it was horrible. Right, and it's hard sometimes to yeah, to, to, you know. And I'm I'm a writer for the past thirty years, but not of comedy, but of books and other sure. things. Sure, and you know, and and often humorous writing, but it's still punchline has a very specific structure. I feel, or maybe I'm just intimidated by it. I I also think that you can be limited by the the audiences. So I'm I'm thinking that if I had to go out and build this this set that I have in me now that I'm gonna make for a for a special about depression and anxiety and failure and 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 hospitalization and all these things. Going around to the clubs that I would have available to me in my twenties or even early thirties, 
trying to put that set together, I would get so discouraged. I would get so discouraged. So you may be putting your five meaningful points in your life and these things that that you are looking back on and saying, oh, that was miserable, it was it was terrifying, or it was it was exhilarating, and you're not getting the best of audiences to to play with them. I I, I really I, I I think one of the things that's happening now that I'm that I'm re- and I sound like somebody who just uh, had a near death experience, but I really do feel that I I Amy will tell you that that it was like he was going to be dead in four years. That's what she told me. She said you'll be dead in four years, and and that woke me up. But so I did have a near death experience, and I was suicidal. But now I I'm so grateful because I'm I'm at a time when I can talk about these things, and I have. I don't want to say cultivate because it sounds like I picked and choose. I just happen to attract thoughtful audiences. I don't have a lot of people getting drunk and, and heckling. I don't have a, a lot of people wishing I would be, I would be dirtier or, or more brazen. I, I have a lovely audience to, to work these things out in, in front of. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that and the timing couldn't be better. Well, I I think, and just just to close off, I think in part that's because, a, your material is always like fantastic. I've never seen a single bad joke, or even a joke where I didn't like laugh hundreds, out loud. Hundreds and of bad jokes. I'm sure they're out Thousands. there, but I haven't seen yeah. one. And second, you come across as extremely likable as soon as you're on the stage. Like you have the smile, and everybody wants to see you win. So it's that, it's that helps. interesting because I think that I I always think I'm likable because I'm funny. They like me because I'm funny. But they're they're I I I don't but go other in. Aspects of I don't go in right. I don't go in thinking they'll they'll like me. I I always think I'll have to win them over, and that's probably a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, Gary Goldman definitely. Check him out on Twitter and and the hashtag Goldman Tips. <laughs> when's when's when do you think your next special or whatever will it, come out? It it'll come out in the winter of 2019. I'm I'm shooting it in the summer of of 2019 in in New York City. Yeah, uh, I'm going to that right. Oh, that would be so great. Yeah, <laughs> so, and yeah. then and then before look. Come on the podcast again when, yes, you, I'll when, come on, when you have I'll on the come next on. like thirty tips. Uh, yeah, yes. So and, and also I'll, uh, I'll come on and 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 we'll promote too. The yeah, special. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and just to show you how serious I am about that, you know, we've been again, try, you know, trying going back and forth trying to schedule yeah. this. I specifically scheduled this for today, and this is the only podcast I'm doing this week because today is my birthday. Oh my gosh! So happy birthday, James! You're, you're, oh, you're, I'm thank honored. You. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, my good pleasure. to see you again, and good to see you doing so well. I'm really Thanks, happy, James. I really appreciate all your encouragement and support over the years. Thank you. I, I mean that. It's 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 been so so helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Okay. Thanks. Mm-hmm. 